Welcome to Chicago Creators Podcast. I'm your host, Kerry Cohn. We are here today with Chicago area creator and musician, Joe Marcinek, who is uh, by from, from Indiana, I believe, originally. Or Yes, sir. Very good. No All no right. How well, are you doing, Kerry? Very good. How are you? Welcome to Chicago Creators, Joe. So, so glad to have you here. Sure. Uh, so you are a musician and a composer and a multi-instrumentalist, and you have played with an amazing array of talent, uh, national touring talent, and you tour the country with them. So when did you actually fall in love with music? You know, it's, it's kind of hard to pinpoint like an exact moment. Mm-hmm. I know like a major turning point that I just like happen to remember is... Um, I had a buddy growing up, um, middle school into high school, like local neighborhood friend. We'd always go over to his house and hang. His name was Jeff Cunningham, and he mm-hmm. always played guitar. His parents played. His dad was like a mandolin bluegrass player. Nice. But, you know, he'd play Sublime and Dave Matthews and all these, you know, different songs on the radio. And I just, you know, along with my other friends, was always blown away that he could pick up these songs and sing them and so it was october 1st 2000 that he sold me my first guitar it was a you know just a cheap samic you know straight acoustic dreadnought no pickups or anything but wow I just always remember that date it was october 1st 2000 it was uh you know one of the major turning points um and so that's yeah that was kind of all downhill since then and so what, when you got your guitar, what, did you want to play Dave Matthews, or who did you want to be playing? What, what inspired you to get the guitar? So around that time, I think, like, big influences was, like, The Who, Led Zeppelin, um, Kansas, Cream, you know, just, like, a lot of classic rock stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, uh, I got my mom let me uh, take uh, guitar lessons with the local guy at this it was like a disc replay shop, you know, but they had a couple of little rooms in the back that they would, uh, you know, teach uh, music lessons. And so Donnie, man, I'm so bad at this. I forgot his last name. Right. But th- this guy Donnie was my first teacher, you know. And uh-huh. it, was, it was cool because he had such like a great open mind about music to where even if he didn't dig something, and I look back on this and realize it now, and I didn't realize it at the time, like it. I'd bring in a you know a CD or something to show him like hey I like this song and I could tell he didn't really dig it right or looking back I could tell he didn't dig it but he would he never like put anything down he always would say like oh I like the tone or I like the production or I like the songwriting wow he always like found whatever I brought in he found something that he dug about it mm-hmm. and so, and so looking back that was like a really cool thing to have you know because as music teachers they're role models they're people we look up to right. And you absorb that stuff, I think, without even realizing it. So yeah, for sure. Just, yeah, just having that like early um, foundational building block of just just be open to whatever you hear mm-hmm. um, was pretty important. So I probably took lessons with him for know, maybe a year, a year and a half. And you know, he gives you the basics, the chords, and some scales. But he was a big fan of the blues, so I think. Another important, like, fundamental building block was just, like, a love and appreciation for the blues. Wow, right. And, and this might be coming more from, like, a, the Eric Clapton world of the blues, so, like, a rock and roll idea, but understanding that a lot of this rock and, early rock and roll stuff, or at least the 60s kind of era, was based on a lot of blues music. Mm-hmm. Um, so so I, I think, you know, 
know, just super lucky to have, you know, those two ideas come from Donnie. Um, that's how, you know, still to this day, I, I still love the blues and I, I try to be open to whatever I'm, you know, around whatever situations or music I hear, even if I don't like it necessarily, try to find something you do enjoy about it. Right. Yeah, what a great teacher to have. What a what a great start to have, and you know, in terms of your music. And that was the first you hadn't played anything before that. Any other instruments? That was your first musical education. No, I I, I had um, I think if it was uh, middle school or well, I think it was fourth grade. I was in the choir. Mm-hmm. Um, and so of course, doing that, we had to learn to read music. Okay. Um, so, so I wouldn't say it was like I could sit down and sight read. You know, because when I got, I got the guitar, I remembered some of it, but not a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, so in, I must have been a senior. Oh, yeah, yeah, it was senior year. And, and this is another, like, just crazy random coincidence that, like, has really benefited me to this day. Right. I took, uh, there was, like, certain electives we could take in our high school. So senior year, I had uh, ceramics. Mm-hmm. And I remember just the first day I, I got in there and, I don't know, it's just something about it that it's just I wasn't digging. So I remember going back to my guidance counselor and we talked and, and they were like running through the list of other electives and one of them was a music theory class. Wow, okay. And so that was when I, you know, like just probably been in playing guitar maybe six months to a year. So okay. I was just really getting into it. Uh-huh. And it was just like one of those like watershed moments of like just what a perfect time to have a music theory class in high school right and so you know that it was like one of the first classes i think i ever got like an a plus in. it might have been the first class i ever got an a plus in because i just wow. like, absorb it and you know it was like basic you know real easy you know fundamental music theory so mm-hmm. you know nothing that hard and probably having the private previous experience with choir and stuff like that of reading music you know made it a little easier Right. So that was like in the fall, and then I remember in the spring they had like Music Theory 2, which was a little bit harder. I don't think I got an A-plus in that one, but you know, <laughs> still did good. Uh-huh. And so that, it was like really the only thing in, in school, and you know, as a senior, most kids aren't into school anyways, but to actually have something in school that you're interested in, mm-hmm. you know, was it's pretty important. So then the next part of the story is, you know, ongoing journey, but uh, I remember going uh, to college, I originally was trying to get into Indiana University down in Bloomington, but right. I didn't have the great grades for it. Mm-hmm. And so uh, decided on Indiana State, which is down in Terre Haute, Indiana. Mm-hmm. And then I think, you know, you had to maybe you didn't have to select like what area you wanted to study, but I think there was, you know, there's some kind of option of like, you know, what. You always get asked, what do you want to be when you grow up? Right, you know, right. What do you want to do? And I remember at the time, someone had told me that, you know, you should do whatever makes you happy. Okay. And so thinking in school of like, well, what's the only thing I really enjoy from school? It's not math, it's not English, it's not, you know, being an auto mechanic or anything. It's uh-huh. The music, music theory class was the only class I really enjoyed. So, wow. hey, if I'm going to college now, I, I'm super lucky to have this, you know, ability to parents that are helping me out to go to college it was like music theory is the only thing i'm interested in of course i'm gonna study that and did you have a, any kind of career path in mind at that point or it was just that that's your interest as a young person so let's feed that and see what happens or yeah no, no idea and, and this gets funny a little later but 
you know, around this time I'm starting, so this is probably what, yeah, in the senior year going into college. So mm-hmm. now we're kind of getting into the jam bands and I'd gone and seen the, the string cheese and widespread panner right. and later fish and then fish was getting to be a, you know, a really big influence. And I remember hearing a story that uh, their guitarist Trey had studied, I don't know if he had a PhD or whatever it was in guitar, but you know, that he had studied music theory. So right. like, oh yeah, that, that sounds pretty good. If it, you, know, you want to study music, you know, that's probably a good path. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so then, of course, when you start college, you're not into heavy duty, you know, theory. It's just, once again, just basic stuff, you know, and then you work your way up. Right. So about in the sophomore year into junior year, it started to get into the, the serious um, theory. And, and, it, and it kind of lost me because, it, you know, it's a lot of contemporary ideas and atonal stuff and just different things that weren't practical to what I was doing at the time. Mm-hmm. Plus, you take that with the reality of, okay, starting to get to the end of your college career, what are you going to do afterwards? And there's no job uh, for a music <laughs> theory degree. Right. So it's, it's pretty much, okay, now what are you going to do? So uh, junior year, I decided to switch to music business because uh, my theory was if even if I didn't succeed in music i would at least have a business degree on the diploma so okay I'm right. sure that would sure that would help somewhere along <laughs> right it sounds like a good idea right yeah <laughs> yeah at least it's a good cover story mm-hmm. you know? <laughs> so, so I, I ended up graduating with a music business degree with a, a business administration uh, was the uh, the concentration so yeah, that was kind of the journey, and then, so talking about influences, you know, early classic rock, blues, into the jam bands. Right. And then once you hit college, it's like the floodgates open. Right. So in a music school, and Indiana State had a really strong um, contemporary music, um, you know, kind of uh, vibe to it. Okay. So, so, so I remember there was times where, you know, every year you had to go to an X amount of uh, performances or different pieces and so one of them was literally they had vacuums on stage and there was notation for a vacuum it was a contemporary piece you know atonal free music all this different stuff wow so on the contemporary classical music i was exposed to all these crazy ideas and then you start tracing back you know different uh areas of the world south african music and indian music and so you have all these different influences and then, then the best part happened. Uh, uh, so, yeah, sophomore year, uh-huh. first first week of school, I'm, I'm in a guitar lesson, and my guitar teacher, uh, Brent McPike, says, "Hey Joe, uh, they need a guitarist in the big band. Uh, go down to hall B, you know, 105, room 105, whatever it was. Right. Uh, they need a, a guitar player for the big band." You know, so I show up in there with probably a, a Les Paul or the wrong guitar for for the gig or whatever. But you know, they hand you the big charts, not just a normal piece of paper. It's the, the large charts, two sided. There's C seven uh, or C sharp seven, sharp nine, uh-huh. you know, whatever, whatever. And I'm like, what the hell does all this mean? But honestly, like it was like love at first sight. I uh-huh. just fell into the jazz world and. I think, you know, having the, the jam band and, and, and the blues kind of background was not a good kind of lead in into like jazz fusion and then, right. you know, bebop and the older music. Right. And it, it was just like, it, it's so, so challenging 
as a musician, but so rewarding, you know. And, I'm sure. And that, yeah, it just like completely, uh, completely took over my life for a couple of years. And that's when it kind of came, that's when it became your passion and you knew it was going to be like a lifelong arc or had that already been determined or where were you at in that, in that type of thought? I, I don't know, you know, because at that point you're still learning, so I don't know, maybe you have like, you know, grand ideas of being a rock star or uh-huh. being in a band for a living, but, you know, this is college, you know, this is like pre-world, yeah. <laughs> pre-real world, so you don't really know. Right. Um, so, so I would say, you know, maybe somewhere in my heart I wanted to do it, but I, I, I don't even think I really knew. Mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't, I hadn't been exposed to life to where it was time to make that decision. Right. Um, but, but I will say that, so once I... Uh, graduated Indiana State, you have to do a uh, six month intern, six or eight. I think it was six a six month internship. Okay. Once you once you finish your degree, you have to do that before you get your diploma. Okay. So basically, get you out into the world, you know, and get you into it. But Indiana State requires, um, or not, they don't require, but you know, to get a six month internship, unless it's like. You know, you're working for a, a record label or something like that. Uh-huh. You know, there's not a lot, not a lot of choices. You know, to just easily jump into it. Right. So I, I was lucky. A buddy of mine, Brad Lone, had gone down to this place called Arts Music Shop in Montgomery, Alabama. They had a couple of alumni that had gone down there, so there was, you know, kind of a connection. And all the summer had gone by, and I hadn't found any internship, and so I started to get worried. It was like. You know, I got to get on this. And I remember just calling him. And I'm like, hey, do you mind asking if, if they could use another person down there? So, yeah, sure. Come on down. And, and, and they took me. And that was another just good thing for development of like, hey, let's go complete opposite of your hometown. You're in a different part of the country, you know, learning how life is down here. Mm-hmm. And working in the music shop, I enjoyed it, but... That's when I think I started to really realize that I liked playing guitar. Okay, right. <laughs> Selling guitars. Or, and, and the cool part was this, you know, it was a mom and pop shop. It, it wasn't a corporate. They had three locations. But they were heavily into the band programs. They would go, you know, big sheet music department, big repairs. They moved pianos. So, like, they had their hands in all these different areas. Sure. So, as an intern, I got to kind of, like, do a little bit of everything. Sure. Traveled a little bit and would do music educator, you know, conventions, or you'd go to Savannah or Tampa Bay. Or, wow. Um, you know, different places. So it was cool to get to do all these things, you know, for an internship, mm-hmm. which is basically what an internship is supposed to be. But, right. you know, really fertile ground. Um, but I know as it was starting to end, I just, I just knew that there was a job there. I could have easily, you know, started making some real money and, and stayed in Alabama but it was just like you know you, you get that that calling there's a crossroads right sure yeah I, I really like playing music and, mm. and I think I'd rather do that so I ended up coming back home um, of course I need to get a job so what do I do I go from arts music shop down in Montgomery Alabama which is mom pop to music and arts in Naperville mm-hmm. um, now music and arts is a corporate they're like I don't know if they started, but when I joined them, they were somewhere under the corporate tree of Guitar Center. I don't know how affiliated, but, you know, right. within, within that umbrella. Mm-hmm. So huge corporate thing. You got your monthly sales goals. And 
think I got hired as like an assistant manager or something stupid. And so, you know, hello, welcome to the corporate You're world. on your way, right? Yeah. And I absolutely hated it. Right, sure. <laughs> it, was, it was just torture, you know, it's just like wrenching your soul. Mm -hmm. Like, no, this isn't right. Um, so, I think, yeah, probably moved back home in end of February, started with them, I don't know, around April and May. And then, um, I guess July, August, I started playing with the band Fresh Hop. Okay. So somebody's from hometown. Um, they they had I think one or two gigs before I had joined them, mm -hmm. and so when I came in, um, they, they really you know it just started. So I had all these songs I wrote and all these you know crazy complicated different you know semi jazz influence, semi jazz band uh, or jam band kind of influence stuff. And is that what they had in mind? Is that what they were doing before you or? Progression, right? Maybe a couple of melodies there, but like you know, it was brand new. Like I said, and you were writing down, you were writing specific parts for songs already, writing melodies and, and parts you wanted people to play, or yeah, I, I have some ideas that necessarily weren't fleshed out though. Mm -hmm. um, but but once I joined them, you know, there was a violin in the band, and then my buddy Brian came and joined. He was a saxophone, mm -hmm. so it was just a perfect time of now I had voices to write for. Right. So yeah, I was actually writing out, you know, the melody lines and, and, and the harmony between the violin and the and the saxophone and stuff like that. And they were receptive to that? They liked that you that was your role and Oh dude, soaked it up. That's the way it, it worked, great. right. Yeah, okay, yeah, great. And they, and they would come up with ideas too, so you know, it wasn't all just me. You know, mm -hmm. we all had, had songs we wrote and stuff like that. So so yeah, it was great. And then you know, here's this five, six, and I think it eventually became a seven or eight piece band. And, you know, we would travel around and having seven guys from the hometown, if we all brought a couple of friends to a show, like our first show had over 200 people there. You know? mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. it, it was just this like great launching pad. Right. Um, so, of course, doing this and we start to play a couple more times, start to make a couple of dollars doing it. And it was like, I want to work at this, you know, corporate music shop that I hate every minute of. Mm -hmm. I want to play music that I love every single minute of. Right. So that was a... Uh, easy choice to throw my life away. <laughs> yeah, I can I can see that. <laughs> in, the, uh, in the fall of uh, 2008. And so, as a as a as a young composer, was it just mainly Fish you were getting the idea to do that from, or who else were you listening to that was giving you the idea you could write down parts, and that was the way you would you would you know approach music? Well, you know, going through music school, we had to, we had all kinds of classes, and so you know, one of them I had to write a string quartet. I okay. You know, different things. To, Are there recordings available? Is that available anywhere? I'd love to hear your string. <laughs> that would be so cool to hear. So, so I don't know if there, there was a, it was performed once, but uh -huh. I don't think I actually got a recording. Is it still it. transcribed? Do you still have a, a copy of the transcription? Or? Well, the cool thing is it evolved into this song called Aldez that I did with Fresh Hops. And okay. Good enough. Um, Great. So, so. The, the idea and the melody are all there. It's just I don't have the original. Mm -hmm. I have the music somewhere. Mm -hmm. it, it, it's it, funny. I was trying to find it earlier during the pandemic, but uh -huh. I couldn't find it. I, all I have is like a, a simple melody I wrote out when Fresh Hop started. 
Um, but yeah, that was kind of like the bridge. But you know, going through the music school, you have so many different influences of different music you're listening to. Obviously, Fish is a big one, but you know, also at the time I was getting into John Schofield and the, the kind of jazz there you fusion go. world. Yep. Um, you know, the Galactic and Stanton Moore and all all that kind of stuff mm-hmm. was was a pretty big. Uh, you know, I was really into that around that time. And this is what college was bringing you. This is what you were absorbing at college and, and hearing there, or where were you picking this up from? Yeah, uh-huh. yeah exactly. Right. Um, and you, you were. Uh huh. Go ahead. Were you just playing uh, guitar at this point? I know you play keyboards too. Were you studying and learning keyboards at this point, or? Yeah, so that's a fun little side story. Um, so I started playing guitar. What I say, October first, two thousand. Mm-hmm. I want to say. I don't remember if it was the, the January after or if it was a full year after. I remember I got some money on Christmas. Okay. Like, like, the, like the day after or two days after, I went to like the local Best Buy. Uh huh. You know, the, the cheap $100 Yamaha keyboard. Yeah, I'm sure. And just taking, you know, my very basic knowledge from guitar and chords. Uh huh. You know, you go 135 and you got C major. Well, I understand a pentatonic scale, so I can play, you know, basic chords yeah. and basic scale. Well, when you're, you know, in high school and everyone else is just starting, no one plays keyboards in a rock band. So, of course, you know, I was asked to play in, you know, two bands right away. Sure. And I've only been playing for a couple of months. It must have been, yeah, the January right after. Cause uh-huh. I remember, it was just like complete basic knowledge, but, you know, because... And even to this day, it's still hard to find keyboard players. Right, yeah, sure. So, so I have one in high school, you know, right away you're getting into a band. Um, so, so that was like the, the start of my piano playing. But then in college, we had to take, you know, as part of your basic skills, you have, you know, sight singing, you have music theory, and then you have piano. Mm-hmm. So I did two years of piano, you know, every week in college, and then I you know, took some jazz piano classes, so. Right, wow, pretty, okay. Pretty intensive. Yes, you know, <laughs> that's, a good, that's a good foundation, for, sure. And, and that's, I'm pretty sure most music schools require you to have some piano. Yes, I'm um, sure, yeah. But, but, you know, I was just interested in it, so I, I probably put a little extra time into it. And did you feel like emotionally connected to piano as much as guitar? Was there one you preferred? Did you have any kind of identity crisis when you were wanted, people wanted you to be a keyboard player because they needed you more? Or how, how did that work? No, I mean, initially it was, and, and still to this day, I, I feel more comfortable expressing myself on guitar. Uh-huh. Um, but because I took, you know, the basic, easy intro guitar knowledge and approached piano and keyboards from that aspect, I think it gave me a, a different approach to piano than, you know, most people who would start just on piano would play. Right. That's, so I, I never really developed a strong, you know, two-handed accompany myself and, and playing melodies. I would more just think of just the single note melody lines and uh-huh. focus on that as opposed to accompanying and then c- coming from guitar in a rock and roll background, it's a, it's a more of aggressive way of playing the piano versus, from what I hear, most you know piano players don't have that aggressive kind of 
you know, how well, like a guitar player in a rock band would play. Right. Speed, There's, speed up a little bit, play sure. a lot of notes. And <laughs> right. The testosterone-based stuff, right? Sure. <laughs> yeah, so, so approaching piano, you know, from, from that was kind of, uh, from that angle was, was kind of the start for me. And then, um, so yeah, once college ended and I started playing at Fresh Hops, uh-huh. um, I, I basically split my time with play. You know, maybe about half the songs on piano and half on guitar. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Wow, okay. When, yeah, when the band first started and, and we had the, the seven or eight piece. And then when it, when it boiled down or a couple guys left and it was a four piece, then I stopped bringing out the piano and I just played guitar. Mm-hmm. But from doing that, then it opened up, okay, I'm not playing piano anymore. That's maybe a good lead into Terrific Flyer. Right. Um, because... Those who don't know, that's how me and Carrie met. I'm sure how a lot of people, maybe in the Chicago jam band, Grateful Dead scene, kind of probably met through Terrapin. And what year was that? Remind me, because time is funny. So what year was this? 2015, 2016, or before that? or? Well, so remember he did, I think it was called the Field Trip Festival? Uh-huh. That, that's actually where I first saw you with Fresh Hops. I, I, I photographed Fresh Hops at the Field Trip Festival, I believe. And that's where I first became aware of you. But I did not meet you until then we eventually played at the Abbey Pub for the weekly jam with Terrapin. Right, so I think that was 2011. Okay, You might right. have done it twice, but I know the first one we played was 2011. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, I subscribed to the, uh, the and, and did most of all our bookings, and honestly still do to this day, but when we started out, it was the uh, spam everyone approach of trying to get kicks. So, you know, you look up whatever festival's going on and you find out whoever works there and you send them a thousand emails until hopefully they uh, hire them. Right, the one hits, right. Let me tell all you listeners this approach doesn't really work. <laughs> but if you email a thousand people, you might get one. <laughs> and so getting that one can lead to two. And you know how long uh, multiplying works from there. Very good. Um, it's like a shampoo so, commercial. So, so I had a basic, you know, working relationship with Doug. Uh huh. Uh, but I remember, I don't. We maybe opened up for Terrapin once or twice. Okay. Fresh Hops opened for. Uh huh. Right. Fresh Hops did. Okay. And then, um, I remember I got him a gig at the Mousetrap. Wow. Okay. Blew my mind that he had never played there. Uh huh. Um, but it was one they brought uh, Melvin in. Okay. So, yeah, you know, I'm sure it was fairly lucrative and. You know, Mousetraps being a, a huge Grateful Dead bar down in Indianapolis. Right. And, you know, Mike was a huge Melvin fan. Right. So I think I was kind of just in the right place at the right time to broker that deal. Very good. And just uh, in case a listener does not happen to know, Melvin Seals from the Jerry Garcia band is who you're talking about, right? Exactly. Fantastic. And, and if you're a Grateful Dead fan and you don't know who Melvin Seals is, shame on you. Right. No, I'm just kidding. Right. Only a little. But, uh, yeah, so, so kind of broker that deal. So I think, you know, in somewhere in Doug's mind, I don't want to say I had sway, but maybe he was off, open to talk to me a little bit more than someone else who played in bad jam. Okay, sure, right. <laughs> I had his ear, let's just say that. Much. Right. You know, maybe no influence, but I was able to at least message him and talk to him. So I remember around, must have been the fall of 2012, they had started... Probably, or maybe even the winter, going into 
spring of 2013, they started promoting the weekly Wednesday residency at the Abbey Pub. At the Abbey Pub, right, okay. And so, this going back to my spam theory, I spammed Doug for, God, if you'd ask him, <laughs> I'd probably say it was like five months. I'm <laughs> sure it wasn't that long. But from whatever they had started promoting, I, I noticed he didn't um, announce a keyboard player. So I just kept like hammering him over the head, hey, uh, do you need a keyboard player? Nice. You know, would you need a keyboard player? I'd love to come out and play. And so this is funny. The, the way I got the gig was um, back at the time, you could have Facebook events, but you could invite all your friends uh-huh. to one event. Right. And so just from playing in the band for years, I'd maxed out my friend list at, you know, 5,000 people because obviously I want to network with everyone, you know, <laughs> anyone and everyone out there. Sure. Spam approach. And so I told, I remember telling Doug, I'm like, hey, I invited all my friends to your event, which was like the first Wednesday they were going to have at the Abbey Pub. Uh-huh. And so, you know, it had gone from like, you know, 20 people interested, and or I don't even remember how it worked back then. Right. So it maybe showed like two or 300 people. You like, brought the juice, yes. Looking at this event to boom, now it says 5,000 people. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I walked Doug over with that, and he's like, okay, I guess I could give this kid you know one gig right and were you familiar with were you familiar with the material at the time or what what you just wanted to play with terrapin or what what why did you have the urge to do this um surface level Mm -hmm. so so i wasn't like at that time really into the dead you Mm -hmm. know i I had europe 72 i think was the first record i got and i had some live ones some of the other albums and uh, i know you write it i don't know it's just had you ever seen had you ever seen the any of the iterations of the dead at that time had you ever gone to see them live or Okay. And it was Allstate or Rosemont, whatever they call that place. Right. Um, spring of 2002. So I remember it was Phil, Jimmy, and Warren, I think. Mm-hmm. And I don't remember. I know they weren't building it as the dead. I'm pretty sure it was billed as the other one. Okay. That that sounds like it, that could be a filler friends lineup, and it could be the other ones lineup if Bob was there, right? That's that's wild. But yeah, it's, it was like right on that that time where they were kind of like their fill, you know, obviously was starting to get really active again. Mm-hmm. But I think that might have been towards the end of that. Sounds like a good lineup, though. Was it? Was it yeah, his th- famous lineup. And yeah, you know, I was on a, a head full of the good stuff and lost my mind, and right. you know, <laughs> it was the per- perfect uh, first experience. Uh huh. So, so, so you, you know. When, Went so, to Bonnaroo that first year, I think, which was also 2002, when uh-huh. Bob played with Phil and Friends. Okay. Um, you know, so, so I'd gotten into the bubble, but, you know, I, I don't think I had the, the lights on moment yet mm-hmm. until um, playing with Terrapin, but I'll get to that in a second. Okay. Um, so, so, yeah, so I spam them to get this gig, you know, um, for, for the first Wednesday. Right. And then... Then all of a sudden it's like, okay, you know, I don't have the time, maybe 10 or 15 dead songs. So I start looking it up, and as you know, there's, Jesus, maybe over 500 songs that you could play, or I'm sure Doug could play at any given moment. Right. So I remember asking him for a set list, and he's like, set list, what's that? <laughs> so I was like, oh, I might have bitten off a little more than I could do. Right. But luckily, 
actually, you know, maybe the day or two days before, he actually did send me a set list. So, you know, I went and did my homework, and and, and from from getting that gig, and I don't know, it must not have been too terrible, um, because I got asked to come back the next week. You had a jazz background, so you fit right in here. Yeah, you know, and I like doing open jams and, and putting myself in situations where you, you're, you just react, you listen, you know, I understand chord progressions and right and that's where the grateful dead was kind of like this ultimate i don't want to say end of my musical journey but like maybe some weird way of a culmination of blues classic rock um jazz fusion and the jam band world it mm-hmm. was kind of just bringing all these different influences together um in, in a situation where every night you improvise like a jazz player you know you right have a set form but you put your own experience into it and and here's where one of the, the random things I think that was really good for me of approaching it on the keyboards was if you play guitar, you don't have to play note for note the things Jerry played, but it's it's a real more looked at, criticized style. Yes. When, when you approach the Grateful Dead with <laughs> keyboards, you can basically play whatever. There's a little more freedom. you're not hitting, you know, too many bad notes, you can hit some bad notes and no one's going to care. Very you true. You know, like... The, there's not a lot of like there is when you really look at it but on the surface level there's not a lot of like cliche piano licks right it's more just playing the chord well very true i think first of all you have you're you're drawing from three or four or five different stables that you can pick from already and then that creates the environment where there is no definitive version on the keyboard so you're free to interpret it your own way without the suspicion you would get if you did that on, on the guitar in a Grateful Dead setting. So, yeah, yeah I see what you're saying yeah, for sure. Yeah, you know, and a, and a lot of it is just, you know, playing the chords. You know, I, I was lucky to get to solo quite a bit with Terrapin, but, you know, there's also been gigs where I maybe only took one or two keyboard solos. Right. So a lot of it, you know, is just hitting the chords and kind of being able to play melodically when there is more... Because there's times where it's, I don't know if I want to say it's an open jam, but, you know, the band is all improvising together. Yes. But a lot of it is just, you know, creating atmosphere and chords that kind of fit the the mood, you know, either on Mm -hmm. organ or piano that sets the color for the improvisations going on. Absolutely. Uh, um, so, So, yeah, it was a really, really kind of just fortunate doorway well, you took to it well. You took to it very well, I know. And, and you and you transferred between both of those ro- roles fantastically. You were a great accompanist and, and mood setter, as you say. And then your solos were legendary. There were a couple times, I remember, you took your time on, say, a Fire on the Mountain solo. And uncharacteristically for a Grateful Dead setting, you just broke it down to nothing and insisted that the band did as well on an organ, just like one quiet note for 30 seconds. And then you would just take several minutes to build it back up to to a unbelievable climax, and and you would slay the audience. So uh, you you uh, you took to it quickly and well. H- how long did you do? How long were you at the Wednesday night jams with Terrapin? How long did that last for you? Because I remember I was there for about a year with you. I came in after you, was there for about a year. I had been in and out of Terrapin before that, but came in once you had started. Left, I think, yeah. when you were still doing it. So how long total were you were you there? No, it was either February, March of 2013, 
until whenever the fire was, right? Which until it burned down. 2015 or 16. Okay, so you were there for the whole time. Wow, okay, very good. And, and then it's funny because I think it was my buddy Mike Duffy. I had seen that he had played the Whitney City Inn with his band Digiometric. Mm-hmm. He told me, oh, it's a cool place. you got to check this out. Mm-hmm. So I remember doing a gig there with... Um, my other project, the Joe Marsink band, which, you know, we can get into in a bit. <laughs> 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 we're going long, Right. <laughs> but yeah, so, so I went and did a gig at the Windy City Inn and, you know, Terrapin Fire uh, Ubermensch or spiritual advisor Don Grobel was literally the only person in the audience for, you know, my show at the Windy City Inn. Wow. The first time I played there. And maybe the first set and then maybe two other people came in for the second set. Uh-huh. But he, for the first set, you know, he was the only person in there. But he was like, man, I really like this room. And, and I felt the same way. It just had a vibe about it. So, <laughs> uh-huh. You know, because it was like the bar on one side, but then the music room on, on the Right, there, yeah, which, right. You could kind of feel like you're in your own little world. Absolutely, so, you were, right. So once the, the fire happened, remember Terrapin moved the Wednesdays over to Windy City Inn. Sure. And I, I don't. I think by around this time, I maybe stopped doing every Wednesday, or it was kind of it's kind of that era where I started traveling more with my band. So okay. I wasn't able to make everyone. Okay. Um, and so I, I honestly don't even know how long they kept the Wednesdays going. But I guess Windy City Inn then moved or became Mom's place. And maybe 2018 or was that? No, that was 17. Time, wow. time is funny. I'll let you guess. Yeah, right. It was probably a good four to five years. Not every week, but it, at least for the first two to three, I was playing with them every every Wednesday. And so that was the best way to learn the catalog. Yep. And I, and I was lucky that Doug liked to do so much of the music. He wasn't just set on a certain era or certain songs. Right. You know? Early on in that residency, we were doing full albums. You know, like, that's the best way to learn Right, that's true. Go through every little one. Even that's the true. Ones that don't get played on it. <laughs> right, you're bringing back good memories. Uh, and, and so it was cool because uh, I remember when I first started, Tony DeLumo was playing drums. Oh, wow. Through Chester Brown. So it was kind of like, okay, you've got this little bit of familiar to step into this world. Right. And, and I think Chris Nowak was playing guitar at the time, uh-huh. um, who I knew through Cornmeal. So it was cool to have some different friends and, and people that I don't often get to play. But then there was different eras. So Chris, uh, I think you came in after Chris, right? I the think Wednesday so. Thing. Yeah, I think so. And then around the same time, Kara started singing. And yeah, Kara came in. A, was playing yep. drums and you know, Packy and Pete would kind of come sit in and fill in different instruments. Yeah. Same with you, you know, you, you would, I'm pretty sure. I think I played some keys when you couldn't make keys. I played keys and then Packy would play guitar or whatever, whoever. Yeah, it was, it was we, we spun around a little bit. So, and then at some point you made a decision. I don't know if it was after the fire or you had already made the decision. You were going to kind of shift and, and do something else. And, and so what was that about and how did you decide that? Well, so, so man, this is, this is gonna be a long one, Carrie. Uh huh. <laughs> I'm sorry, man. This, oh, that's cool. Just, uh, I've got a program. You know, I'll, I'll edit it down later. It's all good, Joe. You just go free associate, baby. It's it's, it's you. Yeah, maybe we can you can split this up. <laughs> but uh, so it was the fall of 2011. Uh-huh. Uh huh. And 
let's go back even further. Okay. So, so that first band I played in in high school, there was a band called Frog the Jam. I know, stupid jam band name. Right. But the drummer was this guy, Pete Koopman. Now, did you ever meet Pete? Uh, I remember playing with you up in Highwood. You had me sitting with a couple songs up in Highwood when you were playing with Janice. Could he have been the drummer that you were playing with that night? Do you remember? Was that at uh, the 210 Highwood? It was outside of Teddy O'Brien's in the courtyard. And you had a fantastic drummer playing. And I don't. I think you and him and Janice had a real history of playing together. So I don't know if that yeah. was... Um, but either way, he had gone to Berkeley College in Boston. Um, so this is right around the time when I moved home, he was gone in college. So when he finished, he came back, it was like around summer to fall of 2011. Now, always friends, we had that band in, in high school, and it was like, man, we should do some gigs together, we should play. So I, it was me and Pete, and then, you know, whoever else we called at the time. Uh-huh. So since I was playing Fresh Ops, it was my main band, this other project over here was just something as, as a side project, something fun to do. And I remember since I was booking all the gigs, it's like, oh, I'll just call the Joe Marston band. You know, <laughs> local, local bars or whatever. It's nothing serious. It's just me and, and my buddy from high school and, and whoever else we can get to come round out the lineup. But it, it was fun. And um, you know, it's weird when you start things with that intent. You know, it just builds into what you love about music and, and, and it became a thing that was able to grow organically because I wasn't using it to like, okay, every gig has to be to make money or I have to travel. It was just something I was doing with for fun with Pete. Right. And then, and then we took it, you know, eventually after a couple of months from Northwest Indiana, oh, I know all these people in Chicago, we could go play the tonic room or go play here or there. So it slowly started to spread, and then when it would spread, okay, we've got a new group of players. Now I think I called Janice to come play bass, you know, when we did Chicago, and then all these different keyboard players would be here, or down in Indianapolis. And so this Joe Marsnick band, I say in quotes, you know, it wasn't ever meant to be my band or anything, it was just something I was doing fun, uh-huh. but it got, you know, these core concepts of I was just was trying to have fun with it, and had never had a set lineup because it wasn't meant to be anything super serious right but you know you start doing that more okay now i've got some tunes i worked up with so i actually went and recorded both sides which is the first joe marshnick band record before we had ever recorded a full fresh hops album oh wow okay yeah the first hops album i think came out in the fall of 14 14 or 15 okay yeah, it was 14 and so you know, it was just, it was able to grow at this nice organic pace, and it just always stayed fun for me because I had fresh hops, that was my main band. Right. Then it was 2013, it was a strange year. Um, we had um, met through Stefan, the fiddle player from Fresh Hops, uh, Steve Mullins from Particle, mm-hmm. a keyboard player also sure. with uh, Phil and friends and stuff. Mm-hmm. And so I flew him out to do shows in Chicago and Indianapolis. And what that, what, yeah. what brought, I mean, you just decided I'm just going to fly him out and do that. That's. Well, so, so you know, this 2011 Joe Marston Band starts. So 2013, two years of doing it. You know, you start playing with all these different people and you just start thinking, oh, hey, it'd be cool to work with this person or this person. Mm-hmm. Take, taking one of my other concepts of just spamming everyone, I was like, well, hey, why don't I just reach out to some 
people and see if I could find someone that was interested. Okay. So I remember the, the first person I reached out to was uh, trying to get Kyle Hollinsworth from Stream Cheese. And real, real quickly, um, did you recognize within yourself what a shift that had been? What, what a shift that was, that that was different than what you were doing, that you had suddenly, you had more intention. Did you? Um, I don't know if I... Because it led to so much, it led to so much more for you once you made that decision. Did you have an idea at that time what, what it was going to lead to? Or it was just like, hey, let's try this. It's fun. We're, we're, we're young. Let's just give it a shot. Yeah, looking back, you know, you realize what a big turning point that was. But in mm-hmm. the moment, you know, you're just... It's like the snowball rolling down the hill. It's mm-hmm. picking up a little bit of steam here, a little bit there. Right. You know, growing organically, but not realizing the gravity of, of what's really going on. Mm-hmm. So after, I don't think I ever got through to Kyle, but I got through to his manager, and he just blew me off right away. Mm-hmm. But then Steph and I remember had met Steve. He had jammed with them at some festival and actually had Steve's number. So I got to, you know, get go straight to Steve and not have to, you know, deal with his manager. And so he was super cool, man. He was all about it, you know, learning my tunes. Wow. Here's a, another side note for you kids just starting out. If you give someone some money, usually they don't <laughs> show up. Sometimes. And, and if they don't want to do things, increase the level of money, they, chances are they like to do it a little more. Follow the money, they say. That's very good. I don't come from money, you know. I've lived, you know, been living at home with my mom basically this whole time. Right. You're very lucky to be able to do that. Yeah. You know, Yes. But, you know, if, if you, uh, you know, t- take your, I was also teaching music around this time, so I was okay. doing music. Uh-huh. Um, basically, when I left the one job, started teaching guitar and piano until about eh, 2017, 18, so I stopped teaching. But, you know, put some extra money aside, and, you know, as opposed to having a, spending all your extra money on weed or on whatever it is, right. put some money aside for, for these projects. Mm-hmm. So I didn't come from money. You know, it wasn't just like something was handed to you, you know, like mm-hmm. so, someone else out there. No, you were handing it to someone else. Yeah, right. Yeah, you have to make that conscious choice to take what could be perceived by normal people as a loss. Like, yes. Okay, you paid that person. Probably didn't make, I know I didn't make the money back on the gigs in the early days. Still, some, to this day, I don't. Um, right. If you change your perception, it can be perceived as an investment. That's it. You found a different value in it. You didn't get a financial return from it, but the value you got from from working hard and spending that money in that way was much greater than a financial return you could have gotten by doing another gig at that time. You 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 found something more valuable. Yeah, that's why I feel that's important to bring up because you know just opening that door, like you said, that was a big turning point. Mm -hmm. You know, bringing Steve out. Now it's nationwide. If you could start to fly in anyone in, the big, in your lineup, now you can basically play anywhere. And, right. if, and if you understand that certain gigs, you're going to either take a loss or you're going to take a risk to invest in, in your brand or yourself to get to that next step. So what that does is it, it opened the, the whole country to me, basically. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you have a band from Chicago and you go down to, let's say, Louisville, you know, mm-hmm. or anywhere, Kentucky, anywhere. You're not from there, so you might know one or two people who might come to your show, but most people there aren't going to know who you are. So it's, as you know, you've been doing this a lot longer than me. It's hard to travel as an original band. Right. You know, it's, it's easier in Terrapin because it's a set name, the Grateful Dead, 
okay, now we can go play in a different town and people are going to know. That's right. If you're just trying to do original music, it's, I don't want to say it's impossible, but it's pretty damn hard to it's, play it's a, music. It's an uphill climb, yeah, right. To, to grow an audience. That's it. Because, you know, it takes so long to get a different audience in just one town, let alone multiple towns. Well, you figured out the best of both worlds because if you do a cover band, if you do the Grateful Dead, it's it's becomes so much easier because you literally hitch your wagon to something else that pulls you up the hill that gets the audience for you. And so here you are, not satisfied with that, wanting to do your own material, but at the same time using the concept of hitching your wagon, so to speak, finding finding some star power and bringing right. letting that bring you along. And and the, yeah, the way you did it, Joe, was masterful. It was masterful. So I. And even just like right now, realizing some of these concepts that like it wasn't a conscious decision moving along. It was like there's this idea of, okay, we've got this possibility now. And now yep. that opened this and one yep. thing led to another. So, yeah, using these different players who have played in these towns before can help, you know, sell the project. And then they that's how you meet other players. That's how I networked it's, it's, Steve yeah, it, it, Joe, it might even have a bigger value than you know, because I'll, I'll tell you a story that I know that I don't think I've ever told you that, that, so you may not know this story. And this is the true value of what you did to yourself in doing, in doing exactly what you're saying. I talked to my friend who lives down in Florida or lives somewhere down south, and he calls me and he's like, oh, Carrie, we're talking about music. And he's like, oh, man, you wouldn't believe what happened, Carrie. I met Joe Marcinek. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, really? How did that happen? He goes, Carrie, it was unbelievable. My friend got in touch with him and he hired him to come play at his backyard party. And I was just like, ten, I was like 10 feet away from Joe Marcinek and he sat there and he talked to us and he's just like a regular guy. And I was like, I was like, that's so cool that that happened to you. And, you know, so I, you know, that's you, you there, there's the value of what you got. I don't remember. Yeah, he was in he's somewhere down south. I don't remember where it was, but I'm pretty sure it was Florida. Or maybe I just know you go down there a lot, so I remember it that way. But yeah, he was he was th thrilled to meet you, and I was like, yeah, Joe, he's an amazing guy, Joe. You know, it, it, it was it was uh, stunning for me just to. I give you all the props in the world as a musician and a, and a, a promoter, everything you do, of course. But to hear someone speak of you in those terms. That he was, it was ironic because, of course, he didn't understand my relationship with you. You know, he, he was, you know, and so it was, it's, you know, it shows the value of what you've, what you've done for yourself. So hurrah for you, Joe. Yay. Hey, I'd like to, uh, could we possibly listen to some of your music? I think if I press a button here, I might be able to get some of your music to play. Would that be okay? Oh, man, I'm sure. All right, I'll surprise. I, I, I did not, I, I, I I didn't tell you in advance what it is, so it could be anything, but we'll see We'll see what pops up, and then you can tell us about it, okay? If, if I press the right button, I hope this works.
All right, <laughs> that's Joe Marcinek and the Joe Mars. Joe, that's incredible. That's just such a great sound, and of course, that you on guitar and you sound fantastic. And on organ, that sounds like Melvin Seals. So um, I'm guessing that would be the song Melvin. I couldn't hear what was playing. Oh, that's right. You you have a, uh, not a great version to hear. That uh, that's right on your end. Yes, that I believe that is the song Melvin. Indeed, yes, it is. We we can hear it fine on this end, and so don't worry about that. But right. So tell can you tell us a little about that song and how that came about and what's going on there and and yeah so so a great resource is, uh, to start is just my website joemarsnewband.com uh-huh. uh, but but of course you can find the music on Spotify or you know, iTunes or YouTube or any of the good stuff right um, but but yeah so through um, Terpin I got to meet Melvin but I really didn't uh, do any gigs with him because obviously I was playing keyboards with Terpin and. Melvin was there, there would obviously be no need for me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so I got to work with him the first time was fall of 2017. I did a run with him, Tony Hall from Dumpster Funk, and Alan Evans, the drummer from Soul Live. Okay. And a thing I called the Dead Funk Summit. So it was combining like New Orleans music with the Grateful Dead. Right. Um, and a little bit of mine in there. Right. Um, and so, so, yeah, it was just one of those things where. You know, I, I have the relationship with him, and so I just reached out and, and um, took a bigger loss than I would normally <laughs> uh, to get Melvin out. And got a bigger gain, too, so, you know. Man, it's, it's very true. Right. Um, and so was able to develop, you know, a really good friendship with Melvin. You know, I even got to go over to his house and, and rehearse some of my songs with him, which wow. is just, like, truly humbling hearing Sure. You know, uh, a legend like <laughs> songs you wrote. Uh-huh. Um, and so coming, going into last year, my plan was for my next record, uh, which I've done three now, so this would be the fourth, I was going to do a different lineup on every song um, and probably record it in a different city. Okay. Uh, so I so recorded one with um, George Porter, legendary bass player for the Meters, and his trio. And then Melvin was the second uh, track, and I we had done some shows in Orlando, Florida, in February of last year. Mm-hmm. So we went went to the studio um, when I was there. So that was the second song of what was going to be this new record. And then of course uh, March came, and the whole whole world changed. Right. Uh, so I've kind of put that project on hold. Uh, and since then, I, I've been writing a whole bunch of new music, and so I might. Um, you know, do, do a different record and then either scrap that project or revisit it down the road. Okay. Um, but so that was kind of the uh, what where Melvin was supposed to end up. But uh, I just released it, you know, as a single, um, just to, to put it out because I didn't want to just sit on it all year. Right. And uh, I, I wrote the riff. I want to say I had I had come up with the concept when I wrote that, but it, it might have been around the same time. Okay. So it, it, it was, um, I really can't remember if I knew that I was going to do that concept when I wrote that song. Okay. But I, I just knew it was was in that, you know, Jerry Garcia band world. Right. And, and, Sounds so uh, good. You know, owed heavily to, uh, what's the song? Uh, the way you do the things you do. Mm-hmm. Got, got that kind of groove to it, right? How sweet it is, kind of groove, yeah, for sure. 
Real, real signature groove for Melvin too, in terms of what we're used to hearing him do too. So just a great, great. I don't want to say use of him, but great use of his style. Uh, and so, and remind us again. I'm sorry, I know you mentioned it. Remind us again. Where can we uh, buy or listen to your music? How do we how do we support Joe Marcinic? Do you? But yeah, just JoeMarcinicBand.com is the website. Nice. And, uh, in uh, April, I started a, uh, a Patreon, which was really exciting. Okay. Um, people ask what that is. I basically compare it to like a fan club of the band you like. Uh huh. Um, so, so you pay it. Um, mine is set at twenty bucks a month, and every week I, I post something new, be it you know old uh, recordings. Uh, I, I put up a, a show I did with the late great Bernie Morrell before he passed away. Mm-hmm. Uh, from Parliament, Talking Heads, keyboard player. Um, I've got. Uh, demos on there of songs I'm working on now, live wow. streams. Just every week I try to post something different on there. And, so it's and where do we find that? That's on your website, or how do we find that? Yeah, there's a link on my website, or you could go to just patreon.com slash Joe Marsnick. Um, so if you go on the Facebook page, I've got links on there as well. And so it's, it's, just, it's really given me, especially with a lot of time off, something to look forward to every week. Um, and really, I've wrote, got almost three albums worth of new material, so it's just been, I know it, there's been a lot of bad, so I don't want to say the pandemic's been great, but... There's a good the side to everything, yeah. Yeah, the one thing as musicians, we don't normally have a lot of time to just sit down and write, and, and with the pandemic, that's all we've had was just time to just sit down and... And can't leave the house, so as a musician, that's the best thing is to just have time to just sit down with your instrument and be creative. That's it. Through um, so through so much loss, you know, something can be found that's good. And even uh, if there's a particular song that you don't like teaching your student, you find a way <laughs> to keep him enthused about it. And it, it goes back to your first lesson, Joe, with with Donnie. He taught you how to find the positive and something negative in music, and how to how to make it something despite the negativity. And that's what you've been doing. And so congratulations to you, Joe. I'm a huge fan. And uh, I just want to say thank you for being here today. We're going to wrap it up. And please, if you will, uh, you have a lot more to talk about. Can you come back and do this again sometime really soon? And, and we will do a part two. And we'll talk more to Joe Marcinek if that's okay. Man, anytime, Kara. I really appreciate it. And, you know, you've kind of done it as well, starting this podcast. And, you know, I'm looking forward to hearing your new record. Um, Thank you. Yeah, you know, I saw you've been working with Packy, and he's a whiz with that stuff. So I'm pretty excited to hear, you know, how that all comes together. I'll, I'll say it quickly as long as you give me the opening. I'll say it quickly, and I'll credit to Packy is what I'm going to say. What he is doing right now. I mean, my my songs aside, I'm listening to some of the closer to final mixes now. I just posted this online today. The, his his idea of productions is just amazing to me, and I can just give him uh, mention an idea to him, or or mention, hey, on this album I once heard this. And he like listens to it, and then he goes, "Oh yeah, that was they use this setting and they use this, and and then he can reproduce it for me." And it's just what what he does is amazing. So shout out to Packy, and thank you for mentioning my album, and uh, and thanks again, Joe. Really, really appreciate it, and so good talking to you. Yeah, thank you so much, Kerry. Really appreciate it. Hang on tight. I'm going to play our outro music, and that's it for Chicago Creators Podcast uh, episode, perhaps four. And we hope you tune in again. Thanks for for being here this time. Mm-hmm.